this is up from some dirt. Uh, you can call me some dirt, brother dirt. Brother dirt is typically what most people call, but dirt. Or if you just have to, you can call me Ronald. That's uh, <laughs> my birth name. So. Yeah, and I've been given a couple of your, your uh, PDFs of some of your collections to read by uh, Jordan Davis. And I, I read them and I wanted to get you on the show, maybe just to talk about some of your like your poetic practice and some of the writers you, you draw from. Cause you know, I think you, you're writing in a really interesting way that, you know, I haven't really seen since, you know, someone like Ishmael Reader, Amesa Zare. So like, how did you get into poetry? Uh, quite by accident. I think, um, you know, my early twenties, I was studying self-studying to be like a historian. I was, I read all these books on history, books on uh, culture, theology. I had a brief calling to do some type of spiritual work, which I ran from. But, uh, you know, I, I would take all these and I would just read tons and tons of history, philosophy, uh, very little poetry. Uh, but I would, I wrote in this little small journal, you know, little I think they're mead, uh, little fat notebooks, I think they're called. <clears throat> and I would write like these crib notes. And one day someone was looking over my shoulder and they were like, oh, you're writing poetry. And I'm like, I kind of squinted at it. And I'm like, well, I guess if you think of it, yeah, it is kind of poetic. You know, it looks like a verse. Uh, but I'm really just taking notes on some history book I, I was reading. Um, so from there, you know, like during that time, uh, this is like the, the mid eighties, uh, uh, consciousness, conscious rap was starting to form. So you had, you know, public enemy that was, had hit the scene, some things and, you know, run DMC, Eric B and Rakim, you know, all had, uh, some type of political or social commentary in some of their lyrics. Yeah. Well, what kind that, of... Oh, sorry. That, that just kind of spurred me toward the idea of poetry. Uh, my sister was a poet, uh, but I, it's just something I refused uh, considering for myself because I didn't like her friends. They're all poets. I hated all that. I thought they were full of themselves. Uh, I had a, you know, had a sibling rivalry with my sister, so if she was a poet, I definitely wasn't going to be a poet. <clears throat> I think that still kind of scars me to this day. Um, but um, yeah, I just kind of I, I don't I kind of tripped into it. I, mean, I wrote poetry for years, but it was years before I started calling myself a poet. Uh, well, what kind of like history and philosophy were you studying before you got into poetry? <clears throat> um, a lot of uh, Pan Africanists and African history. Uh, there were so many books back in the eighties. I used to work for. Uh, black bookstore uh, in Louisville. And at times, Claude couldn't, he didn't make enough to always, you know, be able to pay me in cash. So I would just grab a stack of books and be like, you know, well, Claude, I'm going to take these as my payment. And he was like, okay, fine. So there were just uh, John Henry Clark and, you know, all, just, such a long line of uh, African historians, uh, Dr. Binyakinen, uh, 
you know, and philosophers, names I, some of the names and titles I can't quite recall. Like the, the books I had were stolen out of my garage in the midnight. Uh, they're kind of hard to replace now. Yeah, I was just curious because, um, you know, your work is so like dense in references. So it makes sense that you would uh, have studied some history and philosophy at some point because, you know, you, you know, when we were talking in a, in a, in a Twitter DM, you know, I just mentioned how, how dense the references are and how, you know, you, you're like juxtaposing a lot of like different and in, like sort of intertwined historical stuff to do with whether it's Africa or sometimes you know, Egyptian mythology or and even Greek, Greek, uh, Greek myths and Roman myths. Yeah. Um, most of it is probably a, a diss to something Greek if I see it, just because I was raised uh, so heavily on Greek mythology and Roman mythology. As an artist, you know, you kind of feel snubbed when, when you realize your counterparts don't romanticize uh, or know anything about uh, anything outside of Greek, you know, nothing, you know, no, no uh, African mythology, uh, romanticisms. That's kind of hurtful, <laughs> you know, it's like you, all Americans, you know, we you know we're raised with the same pretty much core set of, you know, mythologies, whether it's Brothers Grimm or Cinderella or you know, Aesop's Fables or whatever it might be. You know, we're all taught these equally. Uh, you know, but to learn, you know, my own history or my own references, those are things I had to take on my own. And they just seem, why couldn't these be equally, you know, part of the canon? And, and of course, you know, racism. Segregation and all that play a part. Uh, but, you know, as a child of the 70s and 80s, you know, you just feel like, I think that informs. I think I weaponized my isolation, you know, that I felt. So I, I'll include some some Greek references, but it's probably uh, some type of left-handed compliment because you know there are so many black poets and black writers who that's all they theme about. All all their references are you know, so heavily Greek, trying to be accepted uh, among, among white writers and white critics yeah and you talk like a lot about building like you know like i guess a i think you might explicitly say in one of your poems like a counter canon or a, a separate canon of like a separate mythology or separate yeah that was, um, that was kind of the mindset i mean it, you know time changes everything but that was kind of uh the this revolutionary uh, idealism that was among the the black working classes of the 80s were building off of the black arts movement of the 70s, uh, which uh, you had, you know, uh, Baraka was a part of, and Sonia Sanchez, and Gwendolyn Brooks, and uh, so many poets. Uh, you had the Black Panthers, uh, you know, philosophizing this, you know, you know do for self, uh, protect yourself. You know, there were so many pan-Africanists or pro-black aesthetics coming out of the 70s that influenced who I was as a child of the 80s, as a young adult of the 80s, and how those things worked its way into the books and the music 
there was this thought that, you know, this, you know, we considered ourselves a nation within a nation at the time. That was kind of the slang that was used to reference ourselves. So you envision these things of, you know, building from that, like, you know, we'll have our own institutions, you know, by the year 2000, we'll have, you know, you know, we'll have taken the historical black college model and built a system, built an industry. We will feature prominently and equally be able to sit at the table with, you know, other nations and cultures discussing uh, our philosophies and fairy tales and mythologies or sciences or whatever it might be. So we had all those things coming out of the 80s and 90s. Uh, and then, as capitalism does, <laughs> it incorporates the best minds that we have into its own. It's like, oh, you don't need to do uh, these pan-Africanist schools, each one teach one. You don't need those things. We'll, we'll have a black studies program at our local university. Um, we'll pay you well to come and teach it. We still get to say what the curriculum is going to be, what you know, the books are going to teach from. Uh, but it'll be the beginning of Black Studies program. So, you know, like our parents, you know, when uh, you know, my mother worked, retired from GE, my father worked for the railroad. Uh, they had jobs that were, you know, better than what their parents had as far as, you know, making a living and providing for their family. We're thoroughly American. That's what the civil rights movement was thoroughly about, putting black folks in the center of uh, American society equally with everyone else, uh, taking advantage of the same privilege, privileges. So, you know, when universities start offering these jobs to black academics, uh, paying them more. They were doing a lot of this research they were doing was, you know, at their own expense. Now they're being paid. Of course, they're going to take. It was considered progress. <clears throat> but it derailed that whole uh, dream of creating our own nation within a nation and being able to bring this empowerment, self-empowerment to the table to negotiate our freedoms within America. So that we, we became even more entrenched in, you know, being Americanized, which is the, which is the goal, which was the goal for African-Americans uh, from slavery to today uh, to be fully enfranchised into the system for good or wrong, no matter how whether it's imperialistic in nature or uh, socialist in nature, you know, core black folks just want to fit in. We want to be considered citizens and patriots. And, uh, that's what we've worked hard toward trying to fit in instead of trying to establish ourselves as our own entity outside of American interests and incorporating that into the melting pot. Uh, we just want to be baseline American for the most part. I mean, there have always been branches of us who have, you know, philosophized a, 
idealize other aspects, other facets of community or economy or you know politics. And I think maybe growing there, I think there may be some renewed interest in it now. I just it's hard to tell with the internet, the way culture is presents itself online. Um, I, I don't even know where I'm at now. There's <laughs> such a vast uh, maze of uh, of topics at work here that all kind of I'm trying to single down into a common narrative. Well, I mean, that's kind of the experience I have, like reading a lot of your poetry. Is you know, you're mm-hmm. you just seem to be trying to take from everywhere to, like you said, trying to get to that sort of common narrative or maybe that common aesthetic, and yeah. you know. It, it, so like is that so that is how you I guess you experience your your own poetry or the experience writing it then um you yeah usually i have some type of idea when i sit down to work it's it's rare that and, and maybe the poem would take a life of its own you know midway through and maybe it won't be what i intended it to be but it always starts with this intended i'm gonna write a poem that's gonna directly address such and such You know, it it will start off the way as with all poetry, and all poets will attest to how poem can take a life of its own, and you know, and then you have to kind of negotiate with it. You know, it's like, okay, well, am I going to allow you to rebel against me and be this uh, thing that this you find self beautiful, or am I going to, you know, impose my authority and make you into this? thoughtful, thought-provoking, or whatever it might be, a collection of words. <clears throat> so there, you know, usually there'll be two or three versions of the same poem uh, in, in some particular file or notebook. It just, I just have to kind of let them wrestle each other and decide which one is going to be the version of that poem. And then maybe the rest goes into something else. Maybe it feeds art, or maybe it goes back into another. You know, maybe it makes it into a, make maybe it makes it into a podcast. <laughs> well, that, well, thank you for coming on and, and sharing with us. That. Where are you? Are you uh, on New York or Midwest, or where are you located? I live in Los Angeles. That, that kind of dawned on me after when you asked me what time would be best to start, and I was like, well, well, you know, I, you know, I don't want you rolling up out of bed. And, Eight o'clock in the morning, and like, oh, let me get the podcast. So we, you know, we could have started later. No, no, it's no problem. I'm used to having to record at weird times for this because you know sometimes I try and have I try and have guests from all over on. So some sometimes I gotta <laughs> be up at weird hours to do it. I wanted to ask you like about I guess the the tone a lot of your poems take like with regards to I guess the institutions of poetry or. Like academic poetry uh, itself, like because you, yeah, because you're you're often taking up not maybe not necessarily a, a hostile approach, but certainly a, a mocking one. You're not too fond of it. It's a lot of poetry, I'd say. What what were you saying? I I, I agree with that, and you know I, uh, when you I think we you proposed that question in an email or in a in a message and. And at first, I was like, oh, I'm not uh, hostile toward that. And I'm like, and my, and my heart was like, yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. 
<laughs> and I do have I have several poems that kind of address that, and probably one that kind of sticks out. I have a line that says, "In our younger days," and it's talking directly to academia. You know, you would have loved me in my anger, in my righteous anger. Uh, you would have thrilled over that. It would have called you names and cussed your mother out or whatever that dialogue went in that poem. Um, and I guess that's, that's fueled by th this outsider syndrome, this uh, subculture that's, you know, punk rockish, uh, the roots of hip hop. Well, you know, what's just, your experience been like in, in the poetry world and in publishing? Well, for the most part, it's been non-existent. I, I, don't, uh, I don't really submit my work. I've, I, think I've, I think according to Submittable, I have submitted 35 pieces over five years. Uh, and the bulk of that has been in probably the last two years where I've submitted the most. Um, I've had people reach out to me like uh, a poet friend who was guest editor at Connotations Press a few, a few years ago. She uh, asked me to submit work. I've had work in uh, some southern journals, uh, but they wanted poetry and art. A lot of what I used to do, I used to, I come from, as far as online poetry, I come from a community in the, of the message boards in the early 2000s where there were, you know, hundreds of uh, message boards with thousands of members. Uh, and I used to have, I, when that began to die down, uh, I kind of created my own message board around 2003 uh, for poets that I liked who were online at the time. Uh, it was called uh, Once Upon a Time in the Projects. Uh, I think it was on the Pro Boards platform. It still exists. It's inactive. Uh, I don't think anyone has posted there since probably 2004, 2005. It's, it's still active. Who are, who are some of the other poets in that circle, if you don't mind me asking? Well, they're all... We, we all hid behind uh, names, screen names and monikers and there's no one yeah there's no one that like oh yeah uh joe johnson was there from you know none of that it was like the uh mile cash and uh, goddess of light and large and growly bear you know just a variety of, of screen names uh which up from some dirt fit in well uh, which you know, it actually that, that comes from that name comes from a line of poetry I had uh, in the late '90s that said I'm up from some dirt like a pyramid. Um, I don't know why that's always stood stood out to me, and uh, when I started writing online, because uh, this was pre-internet when that when that poem was written. Uh, I started doing like music reviews on Amazon. Like Amazon had, you know, you have your own page more or less on Amazon early two thousand. So <clears throat> I would you would build like an identity of the music you liked, the books you read, 
and you could write, you know, these little, these half-assed reviews of uh, of the items that made who that, that influenced you. So I would do like music reviews of jazz or funk or whatever, just you know, real casual things. And my screen name was was up from some dirt. That's kind of grown into uh, you know its own its own being and. It's basically who I am at this point. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Ghost Dog, but it, there's a scene that references um, as four or five Italian uh, mobsters sitting around those, a kitchen table. They're talking about rap names, how you know fanciful they are, and you know how absurd they sound. You know, MC such and such and Flavor Flav. One of them is just talking about Flavor Flav's name. And then the concept of uh, Af uh, of Native American names is introduced in this conversation. It's like, oh, yeah, they had names like Sitting Bull and, uh, you know, Abstract Cloud or whatever it might be. And they're just making fun of, you know, all these, you know, names in other cultures. And then just so deadpan, they turned to each other and was like, oh, well, how was Tommy Two Fingers, you know? So, <laughs> so just the, the, the names we call ourselves and the way in which we look at them, uh, the way in which we accept them, if they come from our own culture, it makes, makes complete sense. But every time we look outside of ourselves and we see other people doing similar things, you know, we find reasons to mock them, you know, denigrate them. So, you know, this movie, I think, came out around 2004, maybe, 2005. And, uh, you know, from pretty much that moment on, I'm, I haven't officially changed my name legally to Upfront Some Dirt. But that point on, I'm like, oh, I'm comfortable calling myself this name and using it as my art artistic name. Because cultures do name themselves. The words matter within your culture and you know, what you call yourself matters much respect to ronald davis um you know a product of my parents uh but uh culturally it just it had no meaning for me you know up from some dirt is it ironically you know my my father who was a cb fanatic uh his uh his handle was groundhog and uh there wasn't something that dawned on me. He passed in 2010. There wasn't something that dawned on me, just the similarities that we had in our, I guess, our entertainment, you know, the names we chose for ourselves. Like, oh, you are Groundhog, and I'm up from some dirt. You know, there's a kind of a similarity in that. There was so much about him. I didn't I had a strange relationship with him growing up. I never felt loved or valued, you know, from my father. He was very hardworking. You know, I knew he loved us. Uh, he wasn't abusive or anything. I don't have those stories to tell. But uh, my family wasn't, wasn't very affectionate. So I just grew up. And that was okay. You know, you don't realize your, your family is not affectionate until you meet uh, families that are very affectionate. And you kind of, then you go back and you, do some revisionism and like, oh, my family didn't love me, <laughs> you know, where before you felt loved and, you know, you didn't, there were some things you didn't like, but you didn't question those things. 
You know, it's not until you become more worldly, more experienced with other people's relationships uh, that you go back and you start looking at your own past relationships and trying to apply those standards, you know. But, um, but I always oh. had this sense of romanticism that I didn't realize my father had until you know, the end of his life. Um, there was an epiphany there for me that, that just really connected me to him. You were saying? Yeah, well, like with the, like for instance, you have a poem in one of the collections that have, um, that that's titled after a public enemy song and begins with the Chuck D quote from Letter from the Government. And yeah. in the poem, like there's a moment in there where, you know, to talk about names and like hip hop and that, uh, you there's a line, sure, he might tag his name in hieroglyphs and other modern forms of graffiti. And it's just like um, that, that sense of, I guess, like putting in your name, like that name you chose for yourself out there in the world, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, and you, you were talking about publications earlier. I just, when I was, I'd write all these things really with no intent of uh, publishing. I just, I felt like that the audience for my work uh, had passed me by, that they're, that, I, that my work was, you know, either going to be regarded as, uh, you know, outdated uh, rhetoric that was reminiscent of, too reminiscent of the Black Arts Movement of the 70s, that it wasn't considered modernist thinking, that it still held on to Pan-Africanism, which kind of faded out by the late 90s, um, and is kind of mocked. Uh, uh, on black Twitter <laughs> or the black parts of the internet now is uh, like uh, a cultist or something now and it's just sad that you know from generation to generation the way definitions that were you know proud and meaningful to us you know a decade ago or two decades ago how how they're flipped on their ears now in black culture uh and ridiculed to some extent. So it's kind of, you know, I never had any intent really of, of anyone seeing my work. I thought that there's a moment in the movie Purple Rain where, you know, Prince is going through his father's uh, belongings after he's committed suicide. You know, he's throwing all these papers around and he realized these papers are, you know, uh, sheets of music that his father has written. And I kind of thought that would be the same way with my kids. They'd be going through my belongings, you know, 20 years from now. And realize, damn, you know, Pop wrote some weird-ass shit, you know? <laughs> what is all that? And, and then they would publish it if they wanted to, you know, posthumously. But uh, I really had no intention on, uh, on publishing until I met my partner about 12 years ago. Uh, she's a fiction writer. And has published three books, and I kind of felt like, well, this my—I guess it's my legacy to to my kids to leave something behind because those were themes that were in my work. Like, you know, what what are we leaving behind for our kids to follow in? What you know, if we're going to have a, you can't fight the system that exists without creating a system that opposes that. So. If I don't seek to publish my work, then I'm 
I'm failing my responsibility to the following generations who, who might look at my work, you know, whether they accept it or not. At least that option is there for them to read what's being said in my work or in my art and, and taking what they need from it to go forward. But that work has to be presented. You just can't. You, you can write and, you know, be seclusive with it. Uh, but um, it, it, that doesn't sit well with me. I, I need to get my work out there. So I've made some compromises probably to uh, some of the ways in which I approach my writing because it's not as, it was, it was all revolutionary and stuff, you know, 30 years ago. Uh, you know, burn the presidents, burn down the White House type of poetry, you know. Stick it to the man, fuck the police type of poetry. Uh, now I try to write those same things, but to do it in a way that doesn't come across as crass. Man. But that, that same energy, that same message is still embedded in that work. I'd definitely say that same energy is in is in the poems you have now like so which is to say i think you're definitely succeeding at trying at, at what you're trying to do there but i do want to ask like um i do want to ask like you know there's a lot in this these poems about like family and sort of like reproducing the like i guess you know and shaping like the next generation in terms of like culturally like there's a poem mm -hmm. It's like a poem in here, um, the boy who cried wolf, where he, where you, oh my God, you, um, you start with, uh, it's like a conversation between, uh, I guess the, the, the poet's voice and uh, the mom, the, the mother. And at one point there's a line in there, like, well, you're asking like, when do we stop speaking like slaves? And yeah. so I guess like, you know, how, how do you see like, uh, that sort of, like, <laughs> I've, I've talked for a while. So how do you? What's your, what's your take on that? Well, it was inspired. There was a poet friend who was uh, going to write a poem that was in the, the dialect of slaves. And I've always cautioned against that. You know, what I learned from the dialect of slaves, I got from Bugs Bunny cartoons back in the day. Uh, these uh, pygmies with exaggerated lips with, you know, cartoon bones through the nose. Uh, you know, who are these, um, the shiftless, lazy, lazy, you know, black figures who shuffle their feet. <clears throat> these were legitimate uh, stereotypes of black people in cartoons uh, in the 40s and 50s and 60s that would replay on, you know, every Saturday morning, you know, because it wasn't politically correct, incorrect. Uh, completely at the time to show these these cartoons to kids. So what I learned from uh, and and as a kid, you look at these things, these caricatures, and you laugh because you don't realize you you, look, you think of yourself as American child. You don't think of yourselves as a child, uh, as an outsider. And it's not until you're about twelve or thirteen years old that those that that recognition starts to set in that oh, well, we're not fully American. Oh, you you weren't laughing. I wasn't laughing with you. You were laughing at me. You know these type of things. So 
you know, there was all this ex exaggerated slang and slurring of words by black people in, in, in these Bugs Bunny cards. Yeah, I remember uh, recently uh, in, the indigenous rapper uh, Frank Wallen put out a song where he sampled, I think it was a Bugs Bunny cartoon where they were, were like, you know, a, a really racist caricature. Like a, one of the characters in the cartoon had like dressed up in red face essentially and said in like in a really racist voice asked like what makes the red man red. And he like he turned that into a like he tried to flip that into a song. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the very first uh, the artistic expressions I do art wise were are digital collages. And one of the first collages I did took uh, uh, Bugs Bunny uh, in blackface. Uh, he was uh, mimicking Al Jolson. He was on his knees saying "Mammy," you know, in that Al Jolson voice. And so I, I had a a collage that had it. I think it was uh, uh, Christ on the cross in one one corner, and Bugs Bunny in a, in a, in a different corner, and some money symbols, and all kinds of. I don't know what I was exactly trying to say, but uh, but that's kind of odd that that was one of the first collages I did included Bugs Bunny in that. Uh, but I, I was fortunate to grow up with uh, my grandmother and my great-grandmother still alive, who, you know, my, my father was born in 1937. So I'm, you know, his mother was, a, and his grandmother was a, alive in my, uh, in my early teens. So I got to act and talk with them. Uh, and you know, my grandmother, she was she would have fit in on one of the you know knots landing or one of the eighties soap operas, you know. Uh very uh you know high class, you know, type of style, uh fur coats and high heels and pearl necklaces. That was you know, her aesthetic. I don't know if the pearls were real, but that was her aesthetic. Uh, very elegant, uh, and you know her mother you know, was the complete opposite. She was, you know, very uh, rural in her nature and attitude. And, um, so you know, this is a woman, the two women that were, you know, one that was born in the early 1900s and one born in the late 1800s. Uh, that I would communicate with as a child. And at no point did I stop and think that they talked like slaves, but they didn't talk, my great-grandmother especially, uh, didn't talk, you know, proper English as it's recorded, but uh, she didn't talk in any way that was difficult to communicate with. I think you felt embarrassed by, you know, it was like, it was just very casual talk. And it's like no different than conversations that, you know, people have today uh, out on the streets. And it was just, you know, it, very soft uh, English uh, in how we deal with each other. And I think this has always been the case, but it's the only time that these things get blown out of proportion is when they are presented in, um, in media, you know, whether it's uh, TV or even if, um, like the projects that would go through the South in the 1930s recording uh, the last uh, slaves who you know, were free at this point, but uh, they were recording what their lifestyles were as as children on plantations. 
Um, and, you know, you yeah, have... Well, these... Oh, sorry, I just want to say, yeah. like, later in that poem, for instance, like, you're talking about, like, the way this pop culture stuff, like, I guess, is everywhere. And at one point in the poem, you write, like, if the TV is plugged into a socket, then by definition, isn't it meant to electrocute our culture? Yeah, yeah. So, but that that comes from the people who controls the media. When when they were writing down, uh, you know, these transcripts of, of you know, these so-called uneducated, you know, African-Americans uh, recording their life, you know, they would exaggerate, you know, if I had a very broken English, they made a very, instead of writing down exactly the interpretation, like, oh, this, this person is saying they had a very difficult life, they would write down this exaggerated brogue that, that was issued to us, that we developed, um, that we wouldn't always do for like an Irish, you know, we understood what the Irish brogue is. But in writing those things down, you know, maybe you would write out the, you know, if you were trying to uh, make a, a artistic uh, connotation of of the drawl of the brogue that I, that they had, or you would just write down what they meant in in clean English and plain English instead of trying to go through that extra step of trying, you know, trying to write the way their mouths, the sounds that came out of their mouth. You just wrote down, you know, the translation in full English. And they never did that for African-Americans in the 1920s or 30s. It was always like the intent uh, to almost slander, you know, the things that we said to the most exaggerated extreme. It's like, okay, they, we're going to really draw out these, you know, the way they talk and their syllables and all that. So, you know, the, the keepers of knowledge chose to reflect us this way. Ways in which talking to people who lived during that time, my, my, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, who didn't sound like, I mean, you know, my great-grandmother was born in the Deep South. So why didn't she fit this stereotype that's always presented of, you know, of black folks in the media, you know, up until the 70s? Uh, why didn't she fit that dialogue? So all these things came into play when my friend was talking about writing this poem based on slave dialect. And I'm like, where are you getting your sources from to do that? Because if I was going to write a slave dialect, it would sound just like, you know, my mother or my father. And it wouldn't sound like what I learned of slaves from, from television or, you know, certain books. And those are the things that you have to educate yourself away from as, a, as, you, as you mature because they're not going to be done by the, by the system for you on your behalf. Yeah, and I think this might be... Sorry not to, sorry not to interrupt, but I think this might be a good okay. time to, like, uh, like, with some of your influences, like Ishmael Reed or Ame Cesare, like, you know, uh, mm-hmm. like in poetry and knowledge, Cesare writes something like, uh, what was it? Po- poetic knowledge... Uh, is born in the silence of scientific knowledge or something like that. And I think Ishmael Reed has a sort of similar attitude at times and works like mumbo jumbo with yeah. uh, like the anti-plague. But um, like, so like, how does, how does that influence you? Cause I think, you know, we were talking before we started recording and uh, you know, you, you're both your like uh, collages and your artwork and the 
the poems you write have a have a very similar aesthetic. So, like, how yeah. how do you see that those influences as sort of going to this project you were just talking about? Um, it all stems. It really all these works are meant. They're self defining. Like I'm still seeking who I am, who my identity is outside of, you know, a lot of, for me, a lot of my work, a lot of everything addresses who would I be without uh, the existence of, if white people never existed, or if colonialism and slavery never happened, but yet there was, no, um, we all, or we all grew together in a, in a modern aesthetic. Uh, let's say there was, you know, had slave ships gone to Africa, not trying to slay enslave, but say, hey, we need help and we're going to pay you a fair wage to come and work on our plantations. And civilization grows as, you know, we, you know maybe we're just, you know, serfs or, you know, fiefs, working fiefdoms or something in America are the equivalent. But we're respected as human beings or as a, as a workforce, uh, not as a slave force. You know what? What type of identities might we have had? So I'm always addressing like there's a trying to heal myself. You know, because a lot of black folks walk around with this broken hole that exists in us uh, from this lack of identity, from the lack of choices of who we were, uh, or having to camouflage who we were if we were if we were light skinned enough to pass uh, and create create art that didn't have that stigma of race. You know, uh, you know. Then we could do those things. Then um, I that haunts me. That idea of what would I have been had this gaping hole in my history didn't exist. Who would I? Who would? Who might I be? So I, I, I you know, I'll go into science. I'll go into something that might be considered the occult or uh, some realm of spirituality or mythology. Mythology it plays a big part. Uh, in my approach to a lot of things because um, you know one of the in an earlier poem I have lines that say uh, who are we if we don't leave you know if we're leaving the mythology of foreigners to our kids what does that say about us basically you know but why can't we leave our own mythologies to our children why must we be outsourced basically and um so I never know who might read my work, you know, whether they are spiritualists or whether they are scientific or philosophers. But I, the goal is to have maybe some line or stanza or reference that they will identify with that might center everything else that's being said before or after that awareness. So there are a lot of things that go into my work that reference try to reference me in my own just reading this poem to myself working through my own issues of identity and maybe that someone will read these works and it will help them question or assert they think they are in their own in, in their identity so i i have just the influences i have um and many of them are musical like uh sun ra and nina simone and uh, Albert Ayler and Archie Shep, uh, Thelonious Monk, uh, uh, 
you know, Pedro Bell, who just passed away. He did all the uh, Funkadelic uh, album covers in the 70s. Uh, Romare Bearden. Uh, there are just so many uh, artists and historians and who have played a part in the, me forming this identity of Up From Some Dirt. Um, Wyslaw Zimborska, who is a Polish poet, she passed a few years ago. I love her style of writing. Uh, she's, you know, Polish, uh, but she's probably one of my top five poets. Um, so I, I can't sit here and say that, you know, definitively uh, this extreme or this uh, subject uh, has played a significant part because it's how they all come together and how I'm able to express that amalgam in my work. Yeah, and like, you know, in Final Tangerine, there's like a line that I think gets at some of what you're just saying, like with respect to... Um, like, uh, the the way like um well I'll just read it and make it'll make more sense. Uh, running, run now, run long, hard and fast, run quickly, run sickly, run in quiet, now run. This simple notion, this mad dash, this motion towards salvation is all there is of Africa on either side of the Mason Dixon line. And yeah. I guess yeah, and I guess like um you know there's always this one of the things that comes across when I'm like reading your poems is like this notion of them sort of being I guess fugitive in some sense and trying to build this uh mythos and you know a hostile terrain let's say yeah that was uh that that poem is called uh tangerine Tubman. it's a, a love poem uh at, at its heart uh if you said final tubman then that was uh like that that was just the name of that file yeah that was my bad i i should have i could have just scrolled <laughs> to the top of the document i I should know better, as I have many such PDFs laying around on my computer. <laughs> yeah, um, and that's fine. Um, but yeah, there's this, uh, just the, for me, like empowerment uh, of any people or nation, it all begins with uh, mythology. Uh, mythologies and folktales turn into uh, a sort of nationalism uh, and it's within this nationalism that privileges are gained you are my people you're my tribe these are things you have access to that foreigners would not have access to without you know marrying into the royal family so from from these privileges uh there, there grows a romanticism in our art in regards to the privileges that we have that grow from our fairy tales that we have about ourselves. So, you know, now we have this, this romantic view where our, our bards and our artists and our poets are talking about things, you know, political or beautiful uh, in, in what they create. So from this romanticism, you, you get, it just doubles down on this sense of nationalism that's not always accepting of other standards. Like this becomes a standard of, this style of romanticism is a standard for, you know, Europe or whatever nation 
it emerges from. Yeah, and uh, there is no there, there's no empowerment without that base of when 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 Africans are introduced into this system where romanticism is an ideal in in the art. It's a fetish, you know. It's you know we're the slaves fanning the Odalay on the you know on her bed. Um, you know we're we're not the focus. We're not necessarily the standard of beauty. There, you know, we're uh, servants in some form, whether we're soldiers or whether we're housemaids or whatever it might be. But we're not the subject of the of beauty itself. Although we know there are a few exceptions out there. There are some artists from the 1600s, 1700s, you know, who painted, uh, you know, women that would, you know, give it the title, the Negro woman. Uh, but far and wide, you know, mainstream art, romanticism, uh, the romanticism is not excluded, uh, not in, inclusive of the African figure. And, you know, but we exist in fetishes where we're mammies, where the, where the Sarah Bartmans with the big asses being paraded through Europe or the Mandingo buck, uh, you know, being forced to, you know, breed, for, uh, breed future slaves, uh, slave children on Southern plantation. That's not a very kind uh, narrative or branding of who we are, but it made it easy uh, for for society to manip manipulate us politically. It's like, oh, you these savage beasts, these are inhuman people. You don't want to portray uh, the people that you will whip and torment and hobble uh, as in humanly fashion. So you had to portray them as beasts to be able to sleep at night, you know, for, for the way that you treat them. So, you know, there was no romantic view of Africans you know, outside of Africa. And uh, thanks to colonialism within Africa, it made it hard to, for you know many societies to uh, you know cherish and embellish themselves in their own in their own way without being condemned for it. So, yeah, and like that comes across like there's a line I wanted to ask you about like my my frights of of fantasy passing as fancy, and it does seem like there's always in these poems like an undertone of like horror or like some of the dystopian sci-fi elements like at one point you talk about like Blade Runner and the Tyrell Corporation and stuff yeah. so yeah it always seems like there's this like you know the the well, the afterlife of slavery continues to to haunt these poems in, in, a, in a way there's, there's always that yeah, what people right? don't realize when we talk about the dystopian future and for many African African civilizations for many African Americans that dystopia, that apocalypse already visited us 400 years ago, you know. And, you know, we're already living in the aftermath. For us, we're already living in that aftermath of an apocalypse. Of, we're already living and have adjusted to life in the dystopia because, you know, you have this invading force that came and enslaved us and turned us into something completely outside of who we were as a people. Uh, forced us to live a life of survival instead of one that, uh, was safe and, you know, we could actually grow from as a people. It was one that, you know, keep your head down and, you know, move fast or else, you know, you, you may not last long in, in this new world overrun by monsters and aliens and, you know, things meant to harm us.
So we, we're already, for us, we're already in that dystopia. Uh, so, you know, talking about zombies, you know, it's easy for us to uh, use, you know, you know, supremacy as a metaphor for that. Like we already understand all. That. We we know what to do when you know when when the bombs start dropping or when uh, the dead rise up from the grave and want to eat our brains. Like they've been eating our brains since we got here. So you know, you know, maybe the the fashion of our torturers have, has changed. Maybe the you know, way they approach us has changed, but it's still the same essence. And we still have to keep, we still have to get away and you know, keep our head intact. So, you know, that that plays a, a, a big theme. I don't think enough black artists, uh, black writers uh, really approach this enough. Like we we buy into this thought that we are, our cultures are equal in America. We, because we want them to be deep in our heart. It's like, we don't, we don't really see the differences. Uh, so let me write in a way in which these differences don't exist. We might allude to them, and you know people will nod their head and say, "Ah, oh, he's talking. This writer is talking about the the hardships of slavery or horror or whatever it might be." Uh, but it's not. It's not always from a that that perspective of you know of of pain of of the boots on the ground. Like no, this is. I'm not trying to be completely poetic in how I've been treated or how my people have been treated or trying to reference, you know, some historical wrong. I need y'all to understand this is exactly what I'm talking about without it being lost in the flowery metaphors that we use. And sometimes I think we we tend to do that, trying to find acceptance in, you know, in white critics and even with some black critics that you know, we don't want to be seen as antiquated you know, in, in our approach. We want to be modern. So those are, uh, the, the, I don't think there are enough, if for, my, for my interest, you know, like the Black Arts Movement 30 years ago, 40 years ago, I don't think collectively we write our pains enough. I think we write for too many people outside of our culture, for them to kind of look at and kind of, you know, accept like, oh, this, oh, they had it hard. This is their truth. This is, but it's not really our rants, you know, that we would have to ourselves in private. We're not putting those down. We're not writing poems to other survivors of our dystopian, our dystopian world. We're writing poems uh, to the zombie hordes that now control us and hoping they understand understand us a little bit better and there's nothing wrong with that you know there's nothing wrong with you know how you try to approach it whether you're academic or you're uh autodidactic you know just completely self you know made as an artist uh with your various uh influences it doesn't matter how you come to it as long as you feel like you're writing your own truth that's fine but I don't feel like enough of the people who write um, more gritty or more realistic uh, interpretation of history. I just feel like we don't get the proper respect and we don't have that that spotlight on us very often. I don't know what why that might be. I can sit here and I can 
say that as an outsider that this because it's because of you know the conspiracy theories or whatever they hate us and you know it's probably something more simple than that it's just you know just just the way society is that's just the way uh like a capitalist model if you're trying if you have a journal and you're trying to get people to you know buy subscriptions to your journal uh and then you're going to tr try to provide the material that you think is the most uh, excessive or, or acceptable to the people you're trying to push your work off on. Um, I think one of the most insidious things any journal could say is please read our back issues for you no know, works that we like, because that's telling you that uh, you, you probably, if you don't fit, we're not, we, don't, we won't publish you. I just think that's that's sinful forever for that to be your for any journal to say if you don't fit our aesthetic, you know, you need to go find someone else that does instead of saying, you know, whether regardless of how comfortable we are with your work or how uncomfortable it, uncomfortable it might make us, you still might have a home here. It's, you know, they say go back and look at these past, you know, winners of this prize or, you know, look at this older copy of this past issue, you know, see what we like. I just think that's disingenuous uh, for for Germans to do, trying to encourage uh, people to spend their twenty dollars or whatever it is to submit. Yeah, we're very anti-journal and submissions <laughs> here, I'd say. But I wanted to ask you, like, about to go back to like. Um, sort of the speculative stuff um you know like you you have this term like sci-fi s-i-g-h-fi so like like a side yeah. but yeah so like where where did that yeah. come from and how does that fit in because i feel like that's an important part here uh i know i think it references uh the sense of you know, uh, one of the things we're always saying in, you know, black households, like, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. So, you know, we have weaponized the sigh. <laughs> like, you, we, we will sigh, you know, in reaction to uh, speeches or the actions of other people. You know, the, the roll of your eyes, the sipping of tea, the heavy sigh. The heavy sigh has always been uh, part of our arsenal of expression. <laughs> so, uh, I think when I first started using that, it's been so long ago. It's, I've I've always been I've always liked puns, you know, and plays on words. So for me, that was perfect to say as this sci-fi of trying to identify our reaction or our art of this beleaguered, be, you know, feeling uh, belabored or beleaguered. I'm saying is that right? <laughs> uh, I've always been tired with dealing with uh, certain aspects of society, always having to deal with racism or uh, 
you know, being marginalized in some way. So that, that kind of reflects that. And, uh, you know, having it parallel with, with science fiction, sci-fi, you know, I think that kind of makes it modern in my mind, like it keeps it current. Uh, that you have this old size S-I-G-H. Uh, and have it try to be some type of metaphor for our current situation in America. I don't, I've used it for so long and I don't know. I probably yeah. thought it was real cool. The first time I wrote it, it was, it probably didn't have that entire dimension to it. It was probably just me trying to write something that was a play on words and look cute on paper more than had any type of uh, insightful depth to it. But I think it's definitely grown over the years. I, I've used it. I've tried to, you know, certain words, certain phrases that I've tried to strike from using because I use them so much in poems that never get published and no one ever sees. So it's like, oh, well, I can know. Of course I can use this word again. No one's ever seen me use this word. Uh, and it still applies. So I'm going to use this phrase. Uh, in this particular poem, even though I might have used it already four or five times in older work, but it's okay because it's just me. So I, these these things, these words and things follow me. I've been writing since like '85. I once had a poet friend tell me that I was forbidden to write about, you know, certain words or phrases because they would appear so often uh, in my work. So. Sci-fi is probably one of them. Yeah, because you have you have like a very like sci-fi. Like I could tell by the way you're using sci-fi that it just seemed like you had a whole mythos behind that that word just from the couple uses I, I'd read. And it seems like there's a lot of words that you know have their kind of own place in in your mythos and are meant to conjure, uh, sort of you know to the effect of someone like Ishmael Reed or in a lot of ways with with some of this the use of the language. That's one of the difficult things to go back. Like uh, I, last summer, I printed out about, uh, I tell people I've written about 10,000 poems over my life. I've written 10 really good poems and a thousand versions of each one. So, uh, which, so going back and trying to edit these works is like, 900 pages of poems uh, to be going through. And like, oh, yeah, I really like this poem and setting it aside and then reading the poem, another poem, and having like the very same phrase in it. It's like, okay, which one of these poems is like you know, this celebrity death match? Uh, which poem gets to keep this phrase? Because I don't want to have a collection out, you know, using the same phrases and words in, their, in every other poem. So that's, that's a hard thing to do. Or there are some poem poets that are known for certain words and phrases and use them a lot, and that's an acceptable thing. I think I don't know if I have that, that fame or a claim to, to get away with that. So I try to steer away from it. So you'll probably never see sci-fi again in any... In a way, shape, or form, I, have to find a I really enjoyed it. That's a shame. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I mean, if it never gets published, you know, then, you know, maybe that poem makes it, maybe that phrase makes it in something else. Uh, I'll probably never physically write that word again in any other poem. Although I'm, I'm, I'm about, I think I'm about poemed out. I've been writing for so long. I do a lot of editing. Most of the poems I've, I've, I've had come out have been poems that have been written just in the past 15 years. Um, so I feel like I've said everything I have to say. I, I have two collections that should come out next year. Uh, I have a third collection left that I'm shopping around. I have a friend who runs a press. She's interested in that. So if that happens, then that'll be roughly 300 pages of poems that have been published in a couple of years. And I think I'm good with that. I'm like, I, I can focus on art, visual art from here on out. Because I really, I, or maybe if I start writing, because I, I am a romanticist at heart, you know, maybe I'll just write some very non-political, you know, love poems. You know, uh, and be criticized for being so you know male centric in that perspective, but but I'm okay with that. You know, I, when I become a, I'm 52 now, so you know, when I become an older ass man, and I can tell people well, this is my work. I'm you know, I I love uh, you know to make women the center of my fascination my, my romanticism because we didn't grow up with a black romanticism we were always fighting this fetish of what society said we were as you know, I'm, i want to write poems that romanticize us, even if it's politically incorrect on some level you know everyone should be romanticized everyone deserves that privilege of of romanticism of being the ideal Regardless of who you are, regardless of what your gender is, everyone, male or female, or however you self-identify, everyone deserves that. From a black perspective, we just, we don't have that in our, that's not part of our history. Like uh, the, the cover for my, my first chapbook, Call and Response, uh, it's a take on the. I love. I love the artwork of Hetcher Flank. Uh, Het, uh, Fletcher Hanks. Uh, he does this. I think he he drew for about three or four years back in the forties or fifties. I think he died on the park bench in New York. Uh, broke in the nineties, I think. <clears throat> um, but he did all these weird, uh, fantastical space. Uh, Operas, basically, uh, had a very deliberate art style. So, I the figures that are on the cover of uh, Call and Response are kind of old to him and his artwork because it's kind of futuristic. There was no black futuristic art that existed in the forties, you know. So, there were things we that. That we weren't allowed to create as artists, uh, especially in vis visual art, in commercial art. You know, you didn't. You know, there was heresy to think you're going to have a black astronaut in 19, you know, 38. Uh, 
be portrayed in the comics. So I, you know, I have these astronauts uh, as futurism plays a part in my work as well on the cover of my first uh, chapbook. And I'm upset. I want to draw like um, a moonscape behind them with rockets. And I didn't have enough time to get that done. Uh, so it's just their, their faces. Um, but yeah, that's just, I don't know where that came from, but just, uh, and that just addresses that void, this art of artistic expression that black writers have had and how we define ourselves and look at ourselves, promote ourselves. So I'm, as I, as I age, if I still write, it's going to be some romanticisms for, you know, for the black body, whether it's, you know, male or female. Because yeah, I think we need that. I think our, that that whole exists where you know we we all want to be romanticized. Uh, everyone wants to be put on a pedestal, you know. So, you know, why not us? You know, why why have we, you know we we say in our slang, you know that you know this black is beautiful or you know you know black girl magic to this day. You know, we have all these sayings and slogans that that talk about who we are, but we don't necessarily reproduce work uh, personal work that kind of shores that up. There are, not in a commercial fashion. There are so many artists online that you can find who who draw or write about us but it's nothing that becomes canonical it doesn't make its way into the mainstream and we need to find ways for us and you know to heal ourselves because you know there is no uh, psychology being done to help you know black folks get past the trauma of slavery that still stays with us you know we don't incorporate that in uh, as part of the med the medical institution doesn't uh, have a major for treating, you know, dysfunctions caused by slavery and how those things are passed down from generation to generation. You know, there's no study of that. As a at at times, kind of at times, it kind of feels like you're trying to use like the the futurism as a way to like engage in that study and engage in that sort of, I guess. It, it's kind of science, it, it if that makes sense. Um, there's a the next chapbook I have coming out. Uh, uh, is a long poem called uh, "The Time Unravelers Travel Journal," and it's like you know maybe 15 pages. Uh, there's a and this is strictly narrative. I've, so much of my poetry is narrative style. Uh, there's a uh, janitor in like the 25th century. Uh, he's cleaning up uh, this hall, this lab that where common tra time travel exists. Uh, you know, people would time travel and go back to ancient Greek as like like a safari or a getaway. So he's like trying to come up with this plan to go back in time and. 
undo slavery. And you know, he has all these dilemmas where he's like he's questioning himself, like, you know, he has a he has a good life, you know, he's he's married, has a wonderful family, and he's worried that, you know, will going back in time let undo all he doesn't want to lose his family and the life he had. But which ways more, you know, the the love and safety he has now or the hard history that even in the twenty fifth century he is and his people are still trying to, you know, work through. So, you know, he makes that decision. Yeah, I'm going to go back in, past, in the past and try to, you know, change time and see if I can't find some way to give a better life, you know, not just to my family here now, but to black people across the globe. You know, that's the greater good. You know, maybe that's something that white people did. He addresses that in the poem. You know, maybe, you know, black folks were on top and then, you know, some, you know, you know, white person went back in time and, you know, changed everything in their favor. You know, maybe this would be, maybe, maybe I'll, you know, go back and recreate, uh, recreate what was undone. You know, that's how he's justifying all this. Uh, and that was spurred, that was an issue of what if comic book that had uh, the black Captain Marvel go back in time and do that very same thing. <clears throat> she went and undid slavery to where um, white people were second class. Uh, and, uh, and that's where she went wrong. Instead of just going back and saying, okay, no one's gonna be slaves, we're all gonna be equal. <clears throat> In this narrative, she does it to where, you know, you know, black people treat white people, you know, in, in dreadful fashion. So, well, I think what ends up happening, and I cannot, I've been looking for this, a copy of this book forever, and I can't find it. Maybe it's not even a what if now. You know, maybe I just imagine it was what if. But I remember that was the whole thing. And there's like this big cloud of Thor and Iron Man, and their faces floating in the air, and they're begging her to, you know, not to, to unchange it, to, you know, to make history back the way it was. Uh, they like admitting that, you know, yeah, we, we admit, you know, y'all have a very hard way of life, but this isn't the way to go about making change. So she kind of gives into that, and, you know, returns everything back to the way it was. And that was such a cop out to me as a child. It was so hurtful. It was like, oh, finally, you know, in the comic books, at least in the comic books, we are free. <laughs> and, uh, you know, let us be the ones to work on, you know, how we treat our fellow human beings. You know, you know give us that, you know, for a while. And then she just undoes all that. It's like, no, we're still going to be the descendants of chattel property. <laughs> you know, uh, so I found that very disheartening, and that stayed with me for the long. I think I was like thirteen or fourteen when I read that. So. Yeah, there's always these themes for me of, you know, the future going back. The future and the past are always clashing in my pool. Um, and I don't know which, which will win. You know, it's like, uh, will they merge? Will the past win? Will the future win out? And what will that look like? Uh, that's been my biggest concern is like, uh, I'm like, oh, the Marxist poetry podcast is wanting to uh, 
do have me on the have me on for an episode. Uh, am I Mar- I'm not Marxist, <laughs> you know. I don't, I'm very left in my politics, uh, anarchist to some extent. Uh, I don't know where I stand as far as the political landscape. I just want my own personal perspective. Whatever happens, whether you know, rampant cap- capitalism wins and destroys the entire planet in ten years, or you know, we're all communists or socialists or whatever it may be, monarchy, whatever it might be. I just want black people to be, you know, equal and and protected as as any other people. That's like my baseline. If I can get that, I don't care what the system is. Uh, you know, we can go. We can go. Let's start with that, and then we can work on, you know, whatever our ideologies are. But at least let's have the basis be everyone is free and equal, because we have never seen that or experienced that in you know four hundred plus years of any government on this planet where black people are treated humanely. So I, you know, let let's start with that premise. You know, we're going to treat black folks as as, as humanely. As anyone else, and let's exist on that, and then go from for me, what our political ideologies might. Be. I was gonna say for for this podcast, like you know, I I'm very interested in like talking about, I guess, Afrofuturism or some of the speculative stuff that's been coming out in the last few years. Like uh, maybe like Alexis Gums's M Archive is a huge is a huge favorite for me, and I've also been, a, yeah, like I also would love an opportunity to talk about Ishmael Reed. And, you know, I think I definitely agree with what you're saying, though, about, you know, just having a system where everyone's equal is, you know, more or less what I want. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I don't think it's possible because governments, I don't think as long as any government exists, I think by its very definition of any government, regardless of its how it came into existence. I. I don't, there's a hierarchy there, and if there's a hierarchy of any type, knowing human nature, there's going to be someone that takes advantage of it, and there's going to be some way, some way that that disadvantage becomes systemic. Just, I don't, it doesn't matter to me yeah, what the I, system is. So I don't know how we get to that point. I don't, I don't look at change and think, oh, if all change is for the good, all change is different. But I don't know how good any change will be. And I wish I, you know, I, I wasn't always like that. I probably was more communist, uh, you know, in my youth. The rap group, The Coup, was always a favorite. You know, Boots Riley was always talking about, you know, throwing communist manifesto on a rhyme. Um, but now, 52 years of age, I'm like, what am I going? What am I actively actually going to see in my lifetime before it ends? What is the possibility of humanity going to? Because I don't see and envision, you know, some mythical Jesus coming down and bequeathing everyone with equality. <laughs> you know, some some wizard, you know, Harry Potter isn't going to come and snap his finger and say a chant. That's gonna make everyone equal. So you know what what would it take in my lifetime? I just don't see what that would be. And I'm dis 
you know, disheartened by the internet. You know, I, I just see so much. Our phone, our cell phones, are uh, allow us more access to information than any other time in history. People have so much access to information in the palm of their hand, more than every generation combined that's preceded us. And yet, we we wasted on some of the most ignorant, backwards, you know. Bullshit. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, how, you know, how do we go from here to whatever, I don't know, Star Trek Federation, where everyone supposedly is raised? Like, what, what transitioned them? Uh, why are there no jackasses in the future? You know, what did they? How heavy of an authoritative government did they become to where, you know? Everyone is part of the Federation and, and lockstep with that. And is that what we all want? I don't know. But so there, there you'll find some of that in my in my poetry, this uncertainty for the future. Like I don't know. Maybe we should all become ghosts. Maybe we should all, you know. You know, raise the dead and let them inherit the world. Me, I, 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 my wife hates to hear me say this. You know, she's friends with, uh, you know, Bell Hooks, who lives here in the state. Uh, so I'm like, you know, years ago, I, I stopped calling myself a feminist. I'm like, well, I'm, I ran into some feminists. They drug me up and down the street. And I'm like, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to support women's rights. So I start calling myself, you know, I'm all, I'm all in for matriarchy. Just give me full out matriarchy. I don't, you know, care what happens after that. And, you know, there have been some apologists talking about, well, women can do just as bad as men. They'll, I'm like, well, let them, you know. Let's give women 400 years to, you know, debase men to the utmost degree, to their, to their, to their own pleasure, and let's see what happens. You know, let's, I'm ready for that. If I was going to endorse anything right now, it would be for a matriarchal society that, uh, women, wherever, where all everything was flipped, and women controlled every aspect of society. I'm, I'm down for that. Yeah, well, I wanted to ask too. Um, I guess is there anything else you wanted to talk about uh, during this? No, I mean, I once you get me started, I'll ramble about almost anything until I stop making sense. Well, that's <laughs> honestly, that's honestly the perfect podcast guest, in my opinion. It okay. Makes my job as as a, as a host. Uh, <laughs> Much easier. Yeah. I feel like. yeah, I feel like you haven't said enough. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I oh, need no, you to step cool. in and be like, no, sir, let's, let's get back to the topic. Like, I'm a presidential candidate who's evading the question. You know? <laughs> you know, I feel like I've talked too much because I will, as, as much of an introvert as I am, you know, once I get talking. Ain't no telling. I, I'll ramble because I have so many thoughts and ideas that I have been building within me that, uh, you know, as soon as I get to speaking on something, then I think I have, I think I have multiple personalities. I think that's where a lot of my poetry comes from. Uh, they all have something different to say. And sometimes they all want to say this, they all want to speak at the same time. So I'm left trying to negotiate and you know, have those things so yeah and i it's 
I like I I get it because um you know like like I said uh, the point isn't really for for me to talk so much so <laughs> I know it's definitely good to get some other perspectives like you know what I mean but uh, I just hope I just hope someone I said made sense or that it's yeah, useful I feel because like, uh, well I've been I, I meant to like, go ahead uh, I just said I meant to say too before we started that like. I really don't mind doing multiple episodes with people, so it, it's fine. If uh, like, I'd love to maybe talk another time about the okay. the because I haven't read yeah. it. I've, I'd love to talk about the uh, the the janitor, uh, the time traveling janitor. So, yeah. Like I said, yeah, I'm a big fan of the. I'm a big, big fan of the speculative and science fiction stuff. So I'm looking forward to that. I think uh, I think he's uh, Joe's putting those pieces together now. So I think it's going to be 50 copies of 